I'm Pastor Daryl Curtis, and you're listening to the 46th part of my sermonic review of the last year of the life of Christ, in which my point is that Jesus became a man and increased his stature above perfection by not just obeying the law perfectly, but by sacrificing himself for mankind. The following is a presentation of the Family Life Baptist Church in Lansing, Michigan. For more audio and video content, please visit FamilyLifeBC.com. May 24th, the Memorial Day weekend. All the college kids are in from the coast and wherever they're in from. And so we're glad to see all of you this morning. Uh, this is the 46th part of our sermonic review of the last year of the life of Christ. And the text this morning is in Matthew chapter 22 and Mark chapter 12. And this is what it says. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they called a meeting. One of them, an expert among the teachers of the law, had witnessed these encounters and knew that Jesus had answered well. So he came up to Jesus and tested him with this question, Teacher, what is the greatest of all the commandments? Which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered, the first of all the commandments is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law and the prophets depend on these two commandments, and there is no commandment greater than these two. God bless the reading of his word and let us bow our heads in a word of prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you afresh for the total sufficiency of Jesus Christ, for the perfect teaching ministry of your blessed Holy Spirit, and for his ability to explain your word. So give us the words to say and let us say them with liberty, with clarity, and with boldness, and that somebody listening might believe the report. Thanking you in advance for all that you are going to do in the strong and perfect name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Now, thank you very much for coming to hear the message for today. And before we begin this, our next lesson, let us reiterate our reason for attending church. We are in church of Christ, meaning had to have the Bible illuminated in our minds so that we can clearly understand the principles that Jesus taught and base our daily personal decisions on those principles. We come to church because we want to be obedient to the Bible, which is the doctrine of Jesus Christ in an informed, insightful, and intelligent manner. Now, I always start out with the reason that we come to church for the benefit of the children. When I was a kid, I went to the Methodist church at which we had communion on the first Sunday. Every first Sunday before communion, we went through the Methodist Church communion ritual, and part of that ritual was to recite the first 10 verses of the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. So once a month, for about eight years, or about 96 times, I read those 10 verses. I've never studied those verses, but I can still recite them 43 years later. This concept for learning is called spaced repetition, and it is how people learn things that they remember for long periods of time. So if these children keep coming, 
they will know why they should go to church for the rest of their lives. And when I preach, I try to use meticulous grammar and intellectual language, although I may occasionally throw in a colloquialism for effect. Adults find this boring because meticulous grammar is not used in everyday speech and adults are no longer working on their vocabulary. Adults have learned the words that they use in daily language and having to listen to language other than that of the common man and having to look up words with which they are not familiar is to adults an annoying waste of time. But this is not true of older children and adolescents. They are developing their speech patterns and habits and when they hear words that they can't understand good parents will make them look the words up and find out that which the words mean. And finding the meaning of words opens up minds. Every new word is a new thought for a child, and every trip to the dictionary makes the child smarter. Meticulous grammar and intellectual language is an antidote to text messaging and may serve your child well when he or she ha actually has to speak to an authority figure rather than texting them. So I apologize to the adults in the crowd in advance because you may find my grammar and vocabulary annoying, but please sacrifice for the benefit of the children. Now in our last lesson, we discussed the questioning of Jesus by the Sadducees, a Jewish sect that believed that we cease to live after our physical earthly death that our existence on earth from birth to physical death is the sum total of our lives. The Sadducees developed a clever, clever conundrum that they often used to prove their idea. Their argument was that in the afterlife, any widow or widower that married after their first spouse died would have two legal spouses, and having two spouses at the same time is inconsistent with God's law. This led the Sadducee to the conclusion that God would not create an afterlife in which someone could have two spouses. And when the Sadducees brought their argument to Jesus, Jesus answered that there is no problem of having two spouses in heaven simultaneously because the institution of marriage does not exist in heaven. The purpose of marriage is to provide man with the emotional comfort of a spouse but in heaven, man will not need a spouse, as God himself will supply all of our needs, including our emotional needs. And since there is no marriage in heaven, the Sadducees' argument that there can be no resurrection because of marital relationships that are contrary to God's law falls flat. Jesus also pointed out that in the law of Moses, Moses calls God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And neither Abraham, Isaac, nor Jacob were alive on earth when Moses spoke of them. Since God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, this reference in the scripture by Moses proved the existence of the afterlife, showing that everyone that has ever lived is still alive, either on earth or somewhere else in God's kingdom, either heaven or the alternative. Jesus' argument won the day with the crowd and put the Sadducees to shame. Now the Pharisees heard that Jesus embarrassed the Sadducees by providing an argument for the existence of an afterlife which the Sadducees could not refute, and it was an argument with which the Pharisees agreed. 
In our text for today, Matthew chapter 22, verse 34 through 36, the Bible says, when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they called a meeting. One of them, an expert among the teachers of the law, had witnessed these encounters and knew Jesus had answered well. So he came up to Jesus and tested him with this question. Teacher, what is the greatest of all the commandments? Which is the first of a commandment of all? Now the Pharisees' question has a different focus than that of the Sadducees. The Sadducees taught, sought to prove Jesus' teaching incorrect, but the Pharisee did not. Since Jesus answered the Sadducees' question in a way that the Pharisee appreciated, the Pharisee wanted to know the extent to which Jesus' theology overlapped with his own. And Jesus obliged the Pharisee with an answer. Mark 12, verse 29 through 31 records, Jesus answered, the first of all the commandments is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now, since the Pharisee asked Jesus which commandment was the greatest, the implication is that there are some commandments that are greater than others. But James chapter 2, verse 10 and 11 says, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For God who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So according to James, if you fail to follow even one of God's laws, you become a sinner, regardless of how important or trivial you may consider the law to be. A murderer's crime is not mitigated because he is faithful to his wife, and an adulterer is not considered faithful because he has not killed anybody. But whatever law you transgress, meaning break, makes you a lawbreaker, a transgressor or a breaker of the law. But since breaking any law makes you a lawbreaker, how can any one law be greater than any other? Well, when Jesus and the Pharisees speak of the greatest commandment, they do not mean the commandment that is the most important to follow. The greatest commandment is actually the commandment that is the most comprehensive, meaning that all the other commandments are encompassed in this one commandment. This commandment is the point. All of the other commandments are just details. So now that we know that this commandment encompasses all the other commandments, let us look for a moment at this greatest of the commandments itself, the commandment to love God. Now, in my opinion, our love for God has two attributes. And the first and most important attribute of our love for God is faithfulness. The prerequisite for any loving relationship is commitment. Jesus gave us his commitment as he spoke to his apostles after the resurrection in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20. And the Bible says, and Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy spirit, 
teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. And amen means let it be so. Now, the relationship that God desires to have with man is one in which we have an, a mutual commitment to neither leave nor forsake one another. God loves us and will provide for all of our needs, but God is not neurotic, meaning that God is not compulsive, obsessed, or anxious about us. God loves us, but his love is healthy. He commands us to love him in return. God wants us, but only on mutually satisfactory terms. God requires us to maintain our allegiance to him in the same way that he maintains his allegiance to us. And that is the definition of the attribute of faithfulness in love. Now, the second attribute of love it for God is obedience to him. Jesus tells us in John chapter 14, verse 15 through 17, if you love me, keep my commandments and I will pray the father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. So now Jesus tells us that if we keep his commandments, he will send us the spirit of truth as a helper. Well, what does the spirit of truth have to do with our keeping the commandments of Jesus Christ? Well, we can understand this more clearly if we go back to the original transgression, the first time that man disobeyed God. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 5 reads, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So now in verse 5 of Genesis 3, the woman is given information that directly contradicts the information that she has received from God. The woman stands between two opinions and she has to pick one. What process does she use to make her decision? Genesis 3 and 6 tells us, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. So the woman found, or she saw rather, that the fruit of the tree had positive attributes. It was pleasant to the eye, but as we have since found out, that which is pleasant to the eye is not necessarily good for us. To a man, the pleasing form of an available woman might inspire extremely pleasurable thoughts, but her good looks do not justify acting out on certain thoughts that he might have. This is true because 
the outcome to which our actions may lead us may not actually be pleasurable. So although the tree looked and seemed good, the eating of the fruit of the tree proved to be disastrous rather than positive. God warned the woman that the fruit of the tree was poison and the knowledge of good and evil led the man into making unwise decisions. The man and the woman decided to cover up and hide after eating the fruit and the ease with which God discovered them and their sin shows us that this, that this decision was not particularly wise. But suppose that the woman had called upon the spirit of truth after she heard the opinion of the serpent. The spirit leading her to the truth would have informed her that the serpent's opinion was both false and dangerous to her. The spirit would have warned the woman that the serpent did not have her best interest at heart and was really trying to use her to bring death into the world. God and his son Jesus Christ both have our best interest at heart. They instruct us to obey them because our immaturity and our lack of long-range perspective blinds us to that which is best for us when we see something that appears attractive to us. Now, the details of this episode in the scriptures are a warning to us. God gives us leaders and advisors, meaning parents, pastors, and even the spirit of truth himself to keep us from making bad meaning disobedient decisions. Parents, pastors, and the spirit of truth have the responsibility to teach us to stick to the commandments of God, although we may find that the commandments do not provide for our immediate gratification. God has so designed the world that we often have to give up that which we want immediately in order to get that which we want most of all. So the attributes of love for God are faithfulness and obedience. For us to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength means that we will be faithful to obey that which God tells us in his commandments with all of our being. When fo some folks sin, they may say, charge it to my head but not my heart, trying to make the point that they don't have anything against us personally, but that their sin against us is just an error. But Jesus does not give us that option. He instructs us in Mark 12, 29 through 31. Jesus answered, the first of all the commandments is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Loving God, that is fully, faithfully obeying him, means that we will also keep the commandments to not murder and not commit adultery and all of the other commandments in the law as well. So hopefully we can understand why the commandment to love God is the greatest, meaning the most comprehensive of all the commandments. But Jesus does not end his answer with the greatest commandment. He continues in Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, our relationship with God is clear. We are always in the follower position. 
God is the author of the book of principles that we should use to determine our actions. God knows everything, influences everything that we do, and knows the way that any action that we take will turn out. So he always knows the right thing to do. And it logically follows that we should always obey God's commandments. But our relationships with other people are different than our relationship with God. In those relationships, we may be in the leadership position or we may be the follower. We may be equals with no designated leader. No person knows everything. And unlike God, we often do not know the outcome that the actions we take will cause. All of us make errors. So any instruction that we give may or may not help the person to whom we give the instructions. The instructions that we give are usually based upon our personal opinions and experiences. And just because I had a certain outcome from an experience does not mean that you will have the same outcome when you have the same experience. Now, love for God is a combination of faithfulness and obedience. Our love for one another still requires faithfulness but our love for one another does not exactly require obedience since the people that we are called upon to love are not as all-knowing as God. Jesus clarified what is required for love for one another as he gives us what used to be called the golden rule in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, which says, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law, and the prophets. So Jesus instructs us that we should treat other people the way that we want to be treated. His focus is on the prevalent attitude of hypocritical condemnation of one another. Now we can go back to the first episode of sin to understand that of which Jesus speaks in Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 through 11. The Bible says, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? So Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So and God and God said, who told you? that you were naked. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Now, the proper answer to the question is yes. Adam did eat the fruit of the forbidden tree. However, Adam decided that in addition to admitting his fault, it would be better for him if he had someone else to throw under the bus. He said in Genesis chapter three, verse 12, then the man said, the woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. Now, here is the first recorded case of hypocritical condemnation. Hypocritical condemnation says, yes, I sinned, but my sin is someone else's fault. They are the one who should be condemned rather than me. I would not have done it if it had not been for them. Adam condemned both the woman for giving him the fruit and condemns God for giving him the woman. 
And this episode is the beginning of marital strife. The woman made a bad decision which tempted her husband to sin. Rather than resist the temptation, the husband committed the sin, but then tried to justify his disobedience by blaming his wife for tempting him. But as I have already noted, no one person knows everything and everyone makes errors. That is the human condition. When faced with problems, we can either condemn one another or we can support one another, even sacrificially if necessary. And that is our choice as marital partners and fellow human beings and as citizens of God's kingdom. The greatest commandment leads us to take responsibility for that which we do and to not blame others for the consequences of our own actions. Adam was talking to God, who is more than a competent investigator. It would not have taken God very long to figure out that the woman was a co-conspirator with Adam in taking the fruit of the forbidden tree. But this example is given to show our tendency for trying to deflect the consequences of our own actions to the expense of someone else. And Jesus explains this in his sermon, beginning with Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, which says, Judge not that you not be judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with what measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus continues in Luke chapter 6, verse 36 and 37, which says, Therefore, be merciful, as your father also is merciful. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Now, Adam sinned. He may have sinned as a response to his wife's sin, but his wife did not cause him to sin. And Adam may have been able to escape some of his punishment had he taken responsibility for his sin himself and not tried to implicate his wife and his creator in his sin. First Peter chapter 4 verse 8 tells us, And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Proverbs chapter 10 verse 12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. So love, rather than condemning others, covers their sins. Covering sins does not mean hiding them, but taking on the penalty of the sins rather than shifting the blame to someone else. 1 John 1 and 7 tells us, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And God tells us in John three sixteen and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, 
that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now here is love and the execution of the greatest commandment. God's love for we weak creatures is sacrificial. God's son had no sin for which to die and was deserving of the place of one who was perfect. But Jesus became a man and his, increased his stature above perfection by, being, by, by not just obeying the law perfectly, but by sacrificing himself for my, mankind. To sacrifice for someone else rather than place blame on them is the true meaning of the golden rule, Matthew 7 and 12, which says, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And Jesus concluded his answer to the Pharisee in Matthew twenty-two forty and Mark twelve thirty-one, which says, The whole law and all the prophets depend on these two commandments. There is no commandment greater than these two. And the Pharisee responded with his summary in Mark chapter 12, verse 32 and 33. He said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, replied the expert in the law. There is only one God and to love him with all your heart and understanding and strength and to love your neighbor as much as you do yourself is worth more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And Jesus responded with approval in Mark chapter 12, verse 34. It says, when Jesus saw that he gave a wise answer, he said to him, you aren't far from the kingdom of God. So how should we then live? Let us be faithful to God and to one another. And, and uh, let us obey God and sacrifice for one another. As Romans chapter 8, verse 8 chapter 13 rather verse 8 through 14 instructs us owe no one anything except to love one another for he who loves another has fulfilled the law for the commandments you shall not commit adultery you shall not murder you shall not steal you shall not bear false witness you shall not covet and if there is any other commandment are all summed up in this saying namely you shall love your neighbor as yourself Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now on, salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. To love one another is to emulate the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and give ourselves for one another. This is the fulfillment of the greatest commandment in the law. Jesus tells us 
in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And that is our lesson for today. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Father, we thank you this morning for this lesson. And we ask you, Lord, that you would help us to understand these great commandments and to understand that all of the minutiae of the law are just subtopics under this main topic that we ought to love one another and help us to be sacrificial in our love, help us not to be blaming and backbiting and looking for scapegoats, but help us to sacrifice for one another. Help us to bear one another's burdens and carry one another's care. Help us to be good to one another and support one another, and help us to benefit one another as we demonstrate our love for one another. And now that we thank you for all that are in the house today, and we ask you that you would give us traveling mercies as we go down from this place and then bring us back once again at the appointed time. And now, Lord, we thank you for all these things. We thank you for your goodness, for your mercy, and for your grace. And most of all, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for rising from the dead on that Sunday morning. Thank you, Lord, in the wonderful name of Jesus we pray. Amen and thank you. We hope you were blessed by this presentation. For more audio and video content, please visit familylifebc.com.